Our reading this morning is from 1 Timothy, chapter 6, verses 3 to 21, on page 1194 of your church Bibles. That's 1 Timothy, chapter 6, verses 3 to 21, on page 1194. These are the things you are to teach and insist on. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, they are conceited and understand nothing. They have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between people of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap, and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In the sight of God, who gives life to everything, and of Jesus Christ, who, while testifying before Pontius Pilate, made the good confession, I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. To him be honour and might forever. Amen. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care. Turn away from godless chatter and the opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and in so doing have departed from the faith. Grace be with you all. This is God's word. Okay, thank you. Let me lead us in prayer. 
and then we'll uh, jump into our last look at 1 Timothy together. Let's pray together. Our great God and Father, we've sung that in the Lord Jesus Christ, there dwells a treasure all divine. And in his extraordinary grace, that treasure that truly belongs to the Lord Jesus, we get to share in. It's mine, it's ours, because of his work for us. Father, delight our hearts, our thinking, our minds, our beings with that truth this morning again, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me just tug on your heartstrings a little bit uh, as we begin. I was looking at this website of the week, uh, compassion.com, we've got it, Helen, and um, uh, I mean, lots of similar outfits, uh, as far as I can tell, this is a great outfit, and for 40 pence a day, that's it, 40p, uh, you can transform a child's life in a less affluent country. You can give them health care, vitamins, recreation, education for 40 pence a day. It transforms their lives, no doubt about it, I think. Uh, they've got decent data, as far as I can tell, to back that up over the years. Uh, but here's the real pull of this one. You go and it tells you, I've been waiting 482 days for a sponsor. And then it goes on, I've been waiting 400. Uh, well, let's stand still for a moment. Uh, what about these, t- uh, Surajoni, Suzanti, Bitya, been waiting 480 days, 480 days, 480 days. I'm just waiting for someone to come and give me a life. And I thought, wow, that's, um, I mean, in one sense, it's true, of course. But golly, the pull of that, the faces and the pull, I just thought, how long would I last? How long would you last if the first, every time you opened your computer or your phone, the first thing that popped up was Fatima and another day has been added and another day has been added. And she says, for 40 pence, you could change my life per day. I don't know, how, how long would you last? Uh, I don't know. Anyway, you do what you want with Compassion.com. As far as I can tell, they're good, but do your own research and work it out. But the reason I show you that is because um, that's quite a good outfit, I think, doing a pretty noble work. But you do know, we do know, don't we, that all day, every day, the culture and the world is saying to us, you've got to do this, you've got to do this, you've got to buy this. Look at these home supplements, look at these holiday supplements, look at these lifestyle supplements. And all day long, we open up our phones, our newspapers, the news, it's like, you've got to do this, you've got to buy that. So if you think something like Compassion.com is a bit of a, oh, that's a bit, bit of a pull, a bit aggressive as a campaign strategy, don't be naive of what the world, the culture around us is doing all the time. You must consume, you must improve your lifestyle. You must spend more on yourself all day long. And if we don't recognize that, well, we're pretty foolish, I think. I've, read a little, I've got into reading about body and its impact on all sorts of different senses uh, uh, this week uh, as a consequence of 1 Timothy 6. And one thing that um, uh, a lot of reports would say that in churches, in Bible teaching churches, habits Spending habits trump theology most of the time. So you can believe one thing, but your habits trump your beliefs. I thought that's very interesting how, I, 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 how they, they sort of 
tables and graphs and things to, to demonstrate it. And you think, well, maybe, I don't know, I haven't looked at enough of it. But I thought that was a very challenging comment. Just basically, further observations. All of us, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, we all have a spending personality. All of us. We may be thrifty saver. We may be impulse purchaser. We may be studied, planned, read which magazine for a year purchaser. Um, But we all have actually a sort of pattern. We all have our habits. And they determine what we do. Now, I tell you all that because I found actually 1 Timothy 6 a bit of a bucket of water in the face, personally, this week. Because it's a pretty challenging passage on how we use our money. And in fact, what you want to be with your money. And if I had a summary, I think 1 Timothy 6 would say to you and me, use your money for godliness. Don't let it be a trap. Make, Make sure money is a tool. Money is a good tool for godliness. Don't let it be a trap. And it can very easily be one. This then, uh, after three months, this is our last look at uh, 1 Timothy. And um, you get the sort of somewhat of a summary at the end of this chapter, chapter 6, verse 20, 21. The Timothy, you guard what's been entrusted to your care, turn away from godless chatter and the opposing ideas of what's falsely called knowledge. Some have departed from the faith. And we've been saying all along from chapter 1, verse 1, the the drumbeat of 1 Timothy is God is a saviour who wants everyone to be saved. That is the heart of the living God. Uh, All sorts of questions, why doesn't he make it happen? Yeah, yeah, we've thought about all those. But that is his heart. That is his default setting. He wants people to be saved. And there are some false teachers in the church of Ephesus who've got obsessed with minor details and all sorts of genealogies and Old Testament references. And they've lost track of the heart of the gospel. And Jesus Christ came to save sinners. God wants people to be saved. The Lord wants to pay for all you've done wrong and take you to be with him in heaven. That's what he's like. But clearly some... Uh, and a number of false teachers have been, dist- have been distracted from that, looked away from that. And what we discover in chapter 6 is it's because of money. Throughout 1 Timothy, Paul's been wanting to strengthen Timothy, keep going. And can you tell the false teachers to shut up and keep reminding people that God is a saviour? So that's the backdrop, and that's where chapter 6 fits in. Three little, three little things. Uh, we'll work through it in those main paragraphs. Loving money is a trap, 3 to 10. You flee by looking forward, 11 to 16. And possessing money is a danger. Loving money is a trap. You flee by looking forward. Possessing money is a danger. We'll work through them. First then, in verses 3 to 10. Loving money is a trap. These are the things, uh, chapter 6 and verse 3. These are the things you are to teach and insist on. These things throughout the letter have been a reference to whole of Paul's teaching, the doctrine of the Christian faith, the godly conduct that should flow from that. And so here's a twofold test of whether something's true. You've got to think hard about it, not infallible. But verse 3, if anyone teaches otherwise and doesn't agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ, the doctrine, and to godly teaching, that's what it produces, godliness, then that's probably a hint that it's terrible and you should ignore it. Does it conform with what Jesus taught? Does it make people godly? Verse 4, familiar on the false teachers. They're obsessed with controversies. But verse 5 is the novel information in the letter. That what's distorted them is 
verse 5, they think that godliness is a means to financial gain. Presumably they're, in some sense, charging for their instruction. And what Paul desires for Timothy, for you, for me, is chapter 6, verse 6. Godliness with contentment. That is great gain. More than financial gain, that is enormous gain. Do you remember, even in chapter 4, godliness is better for everything in this life. Godliness enriches everything. Money helps in some ways. Godliness makes your work better. It makes your marriage better. It makes your friendships better. It makes your life better. Godliness improves everything. And you can take it with you into the next life. So three little things he says here about to to encourage godliness with contentment. The first, uh, verse 7, you can't take money with you. Verse 7, we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. That's obvious and we need reminding. Imagine this afternoon, um, a man at some point in the afternoon wanders into Harrods. And uh, he says, you know, what time does it shut? Six o'clock on a Sunday. I don't know, I'm making that up. Um, anyway, but uh, uh, I've, got, I've got a couple of hours. And he goes and just gathers stuff. And he, so he goes and picks up some, a wildly expensive suit and uh, the most expensive uh, set of golf clubs that they've got, uh, some gold bling, there's, of whatever, there's lots of that, isn't there? Um, goes to the watches department and, you know, what, what, you know, looks at the prices, price upon application, yeah, I'll have that one, uh, £400,000 for a watch. And he gathers all this stuff and then he just sits down on the floor with it, just surrounded by a pile of stuff. And eventually a member of staff says, sorry, can I help you? No, I'm having the time of my life. Uh, what are you doing? Look at everything I've got. Do you intend to buy any of it, sir? It's all mine already. No, it isn't. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, the clock, there's a strange man, let's not make a fuss. The clock ticks on five to six. You have to leave now, sir. And he gathers up everything. You can't take it with you. Now, if you saw such a man, you'd think, he's a little bit doolally. And, of course, the point is sometimes... That is this world. I'll accumulate, I'll accumulate, I'll gather. I've got a watch, but I want one worth X hundred thousand because then it tells the time <laughs> more. Um, accumulate, accumulate. I've got some clothes, but I need a 3,000 pound suit because then I'm better. And you can't take it with you. And what are you doing? That's his point. He also says, verse 8, having what you need does bring contentment. Verse 8, if we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. And most of us say, no, we won't. Or, depends what else, what sort of quality of food. But I think all he's saying, an economist would read that and say, oh, yes. Yes, Paul is outlining the, the, the law of diminishing returns. So I read some secular studies on money and happiness this week. The most recent large-scale research done in the U.S. by a man called Matthew Killingsworth. You can read about it. But uh, this is quite familiar, but he's just done it in more detail. Essentially, in the West, it's obviously different if, uh, if you're uh, a poorer country, but in the West, um, essentially, happiness increases at a pretty steep 
you know, really steep rate until about 30,000 pounds. If you're right, if you've got 30,000 pounds a year, you really, I mean, that makes happiness. Every pound you get more than that really makes a difference. Uh, and then it really starts to tail off. It still goes up, still goes up. And then at 50,000, it pretty much plateaus and the incremental increase is diddy. Diddy, diddy, diddy. But you can keep going, it make a marginal, marginal, marginal difference. But then the magic number for him, his research, because he's writing it for the wealthy, really, at 150,000, um, the only way to make yourself happier is to give it away. Above 150,000 of your incomes. You, you cannot make yourself happier by just getting more or better. It just doesn't work anymore. It works tiny, 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 tiny amounts between 50 and 150. But the, the only way you can make yourself happier is to give it away above that point. Now, of course, most of you sitting there think, well, that's such important information on my 500,000 pounds a year. Uh, I know, I know. I know. Um, but the point is just Paul's point. There's a law of diminishing returns here. And once you've got a house to live in, not necessarily to own, but you're housed and you're clothed and you're fed and you've, you've got warmth. After that, yeah, you can be a bit happier, but it's not, it's not very much more. Beyond that, it's relationships, it's people. It's knowing the Lord, of course, makes the biggest difference. So look, having what you, uh, knowing, having what you need is, brings contentment. And then his first, last little comment, sorry, here, verse nine. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap. A desire for riches is a trap. It's really interesting, and, and grammatically, it's, it's perhaps clearer uh, than in the English. Um, you can be tempted in any sorts of ways, of course. All of us can be tempted um, to, to lies or whatever it may be. But the desire to get rich opens a door to new temptations. If you, verse 9, want to get rich, you fall into, there's a whole new, you've gone through a door and there's a whole new world of temptations opens to you that you wouldn't otherwise be exposed to. And maybe sometimes you see that. I think of a guy uh, I know uh, in his 60s. I've known him for decades. I've always been really impressed. He's just been pretty indifferent to money. Very generous with his money. Uh, in frivolous ways, in sort of serious Christian ways, just very generous. And he's got to his 60s. And all of a sudden, I think he sees the clock and retirement and and he's a bit more concerned about money. And you just observe, all of a sudden, hold on a minute, your decision-making's gone pretty wonky here. And you're taking some really strange decisions here. And all of a sudden, uh, mid-60s, this door is opened and there's a whole world of temptations and I think you might be running into it. It was never there before. But all of a sudden, the desire for wealth has come upon him. Be careful, says Paul, because the desire to get rich is a trap. I, don't, <laughs> I slightly got obsessed with this this week. I started thinking about um, traps and um, what if, you know, uh, mouse traps. Oh, we've got a mouse trap. We swear our mouse traps at home. We haven't, you know, we've thrown them away. That's annoying. Um, and, uh, but can you think of, imagine a man-sized mouse trap that rather than a little bit of cheese or Nutella, or whatever it is, peanut butter that you put into to catch the mice. It's just a bag of money. We well, don't have to imagine there's a bloke who's made one. It's extraordinary. 
it's like a man-sized, and um, you see it, you, that's halfway through, the, you, you, I mean, uh, don't waste your time like I did, uh, but you can go on, and, and um, he puts, starts off with watermelons, and, and they're smashed, and coconuts, and, and they're smashed, and then he puts a polystyrene man on, and he's just absolutely destroyed, but it's extraordinary, it's a trap, says Paul, the love of money is a trap, and um, I, you know, Oh, bring it back, bring it back. The, um, that, I think, is a... Have that in your head. And the next time you find yourself saying, I need more money for X, just think, whoa, I don't want to be in the trap. Just, I mean, it's helped me this week. Just offer it to you. Don't make one. <laughs> Feel free to waste five minutes of your life going and viewing the bloke, man-sized mousetrap. That'll get you there. It's actually very entertaining. Um... Uh, and, but it was he's making this thing and his wife's like, what are you doing? Um, and you think, yeah, I recognise that sort of dynamic uh, going on. But it's a trap. Verse 10, or sorry, verse 9, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. It's piling up the language there. Verse 10, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Money is neutral, it's a tool. You can use it for godliness. But if you love it, well, you're opening yourself up to all sorts of temptations. It's a root of all kinds of evil. And here in Ephesus, some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. It's such a vivid picture, isn't it? You find yourself saying, I just need more money, I just... You may as well go and buy a box of drawing pins and stick them all over your head and pierce yourself many times as a reminder that I don't want to do that. Don't do that. Um, I don't want to be pierced with many griefs. If I obsess about money too much, I may end up like these people in Ephesus and wander away from the faith. So loving money is a trap says Paul. Some have fallen into it. Don't go there, Timothy. CCM, don't go there. Don't just steer clear of the trap. No, it's a trap. No, it will produce ruin, destruction, pierce you with griefs. Be careful. So what do we do? How do we avoid the trap? Well, the advice here, second thing, so if loving money is a trap, verses 3 to 10, uh, verses 11 to 16, you flee it by looking forward. That's what you're meant to do. Four imperatives here in verse 11 and 12. But you, man of God, flee first from all this and pursue, secondly, righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, gentleness. Fight the good fight, thirdly, of the faith. Take hold, fourthly, of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Can I make an obvious point? Fleeing, pursuing, fighting, grabbing hold of, they're all pretty active. You know, no one says, you know, if I said to you, Sam is sat in a chair, what are you doing right now? He's not going to say, I'm fleeing. No, you're sat in a chair. I'm pursuing. No, you're sat in the chair. I'm fighting. No, you're sat in a chair. I'm grasping hold of. No, you're sat in a chair. You're still sat in a chair. Um, they're all active. You've got to do something. The assumption here seems to be, even if you are like Timothy, a man of God, a good guy, 
a Philippian church, Paul writes to them, chapter 2, verse 20, I have no one like Timothy who is concerned for your welfare. He's the best. This guy is told, flee. Flee the love of money. If you don't actively flee, you're likely to drift and be taken along in that direction, is the warning he gives. These are not passive verbs. You've got to decide to avoid the love of money. And you need some big truths to resist it. Verse uh, 13, you need to remember Jesus' confession and remember Jesus' return. Those are big truths. Verse 13, in the sight of God who gives life to everything and of Christ Jesus, who while testifying before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, I charge you. That's a pretty big drum roll to what he's about to say. Remember Jesus' confession. Your saviour, remember him. And when he was stood before Pontius Pilate and his life was on the line, and the easy thing, the comfortable thing, would be to say, well, whatever you want me to say. He held on to the truth. Timothy, you've got to hold on to the truth. Jesus did it. Remember his confession. And crucially, remember his return. Verse 14. I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal, who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honor and might forever. Amen. Why in the middle of this argument, this big doxology, Jesus is coming back. How do I know? Because God has said it. And what is this God like? He's like this. He's the only one. He's the only ruler. Stuff the Roman emperors. He's the king of kings and lord of lords. He alone is immortal. Stuff what Caesar says, that he lives on after he's dead. There's no one who can resist this God. This irresistible God who's absolutely glorious has said, this will happen. It'll happen. So keep looking forward. This Lord, King of Kings and Lord of Lords who lives in unapproachable light and yet says to the Christian, you can approach because of my son. You could approach, not because you're worthy, but because you're clothed in his perfection. You can approach the unapproachable one. My uh, uh, son has got us into watching a little bit of Clarkson's Farm. I don't, he's a divisive figure, I know. It's quite a good telly, actually, to be fair. And I quite like it because I grew up in farmland and farming country, and my son's grown up in the middle of London. He's learning something about farming. Uh, so that's, that's a win, I think. Uh, and, you know, whatever. There's some, it's Jeremy Clarkson, so take it or leave it. Um, but it's quite good. And uh, there was one episode about lambing. He bought some lambs, and he's clueless. So basically, he's like you're, you're the Muppet who's teaching all the other Muppets who know nothing about farming. What's going on? And um, did you know? What happens if you get a, a lamb born and it's a, an orphan? Mum dies in some place. You've got an orphan lamb. What do you do? Because if you, if you, if you take a lamb up to a, a, another mum, mum goes, you're not mine, and sort of butts it away and, is, you know, and will kick it away and say, get away, you've got nothing. It's unapproachable, mum sheep. Do you know what they do? It's very clever. They make a little um, suit from like uh, compression what do you call it when you, um, oh, I should have looked this up. When, you, when you've done an injury and you've got a dodgy elbow, look, compression socks, compression socks, those sort of things where you wear on an airplane. They make a little suit out of that and they put it on one of the natural kids for a couple of hours and then they put the suit on the, um, the orphan and then the orphan goes up to mum and mum goes, yeah, you can come in. It's 
very clever. I mean, simple, isn't it? Um, very clever. Now, <laughs> the Lord is not stupid. He's not fooled by a suit. But the point is, no one, none of us can naturally come before the unapproachable one because he's perfect and we're not. But if you trust in Jesus and are clothed in Jesus, you can approach the unapproachable one because you're clothed in his perfection. And so keep looking forward to that, to standing in the glorious presence of God, the blessed and only ruler, the immortal one who lives in unapproachable light, but you can go near. Keep looking forward to that, Timothy, you and me. Loving money is a trap. You flee by looking forward. Last, possessing money is a danger. Different here, verses 17 to 19. Verses 3 to 10, condemnation of those who are trying to get rich. Verses 17 to 19, a warning to those who are rich. So not the same condemnation, but just a warning. And at that point, most of us go, phew, I'm not rich. And of course, then we think, well, what does that even mean in a global world? Because if you earn more than 26,000 pounds per annum, you're in the top 1% globally. Well, that's ridiculous because they don't have to live in London with its costs. I know, but we are rich. If you earn more than 38,000 pounds, apparently, that's, you, that's the top 10% of UK earners. Yeah, but they don't have to live in London. They're living in Yorkshire. You're whatever, I know, I know. I know all the caveats to it. But broadly speaking, most of us here, we have food, we have clothing, we have heating, we have a roof over our heads at night. Mostly speaking, in the broad sense, we're rich. So don't think this isn't you and it isn't me. I think it is us. And what does Paul say? Well, there are a lot of commands here. So even though it's not a rebuke, it is quite a strong warning. Verse 17, command one, don't be arrogant. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant. It's one of those things, isn't it? It does not have to work this way. But if you have more money, it doesn't just make you financially superior. It can make you just feel superior. You ever see it? You go on an airplane and some people turn left. And they're, you know, oh, I turn left. That's what I do. And you think, they turn left. Um, I'd like to turn left. Um, and, you know, whatever. Uh, and then something uh, You enter a, a room in a shabby clothing and you think, oh, oh I feel a bit underdressed. You enter a room in a new suit. Look at me. Look at me. There's something about it. It's not just, it can't. It doesn't have to work that way. But you have money. It can make you feel not just richer, but better. Don't do that. Don't be arrogant. Remember, God has given everything you've got. Uh, alongside that, second little command, don't, don't put your hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. Put your hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Don't put your hope in riches. Put your hope in God. The obvious question, how do I know? I mean, I've got to spend money. Look, I do have to have some clothes to go to work in. I do have to have some food. How do I know if my hope is in riches or my hope is in God? Well, it's difficult. But does, do people look at your life and think, they're not living for this world, they're living for another world? I mean, that'd be quite a big leap, wouldn't it? 
occasionally. You get that? People come to your house. Your house is different to everyone else's in the street. Why? Oh, because I invest in a different world. Your holidays. What? I feel that deeply as a rebuke. So, uh, earlier this year, someone was um, complaining about the, the, at work in their workplace. Oh, everyone wants sponsorship. You know, can you give money for this and money for this? And I want to say, ah, you know, I'm not 50 quid here, 100 quid there, and you'll think you're wonderful. And, you know, I properly give and I plan my giving. And uh, they were in a bit of a funk about it. And they said, you know, it's really anno- it's so annoying. But, you know, when I set up, I moved giving from. Um, after tax to give as you earn and I sent it in the form and someone from HR emailed back and said oh I think you've made a mistake on your form you've clearly put an extra zero you don't mean that do you yes oh you give that amount away why do you do that now that's one particular scenario would anyone ever look at say why you're not investing in this world like everyone else around you to the same extent why well maybe Maybe something like that would make a difference. But the third little command, I think, is the, is the, is the great litmus test. Verse 18, do good. Verse 18, command them to do good. Command those of us who are rich to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share. I think those are different things. It might be that they're all one thing, actually. Be doing good is the general and rich in good deeds that is financial generosity I think probably within the flow it makes more sense that there's a difference there command the rich to do good actually to that's how you can tell is my hope in riches or is my hope in God well what do I do with my riches am I generous with them and for us in London which is relatively speaking sometimes cash rich and time poor, do I do good? Do I give of my time to other people? That'll reveal. Do I give it away? Do I accumulate? That's really saying that's the test of where your hope is. Do you live for this world or the next? Now look, hopefully in um, uh, those in discipleship groups, you have a bit more time for this practically, but let me give you a few things just very, very, this is really nuts and boltsy sort of practically. As I said at the beginning, evidence suggests that amongst churches, good churches, gospel-believing, Bible-teaching churches, habits trump your theology. What do you do? I read this book this, uh, in the week, very challenging, or technically listened to it, um, but uh, uh, very good, I think. Uh, Jochel uh, Frank, um, he's an Aussie, um, and um, he, well, he was an accountant, uh, and then set up his own business, and he set up another business, and he's sort of um, angel investor in various things now. So he's a bit of an entrepreneur, uh, based in Perth. And he's, some of you know, there's a book, The Barefoot Investor, sort of big seller. Anyway, he's riffing off that, The Barefoot Disciple. And uh, the reason I thought is, it's both challenging, but also he's clearly financially savvy. So he's not daft and unrealistic in the challenge. And um, there, there are numerous things, but the big three, I think, are that he says are this. It's worth reading or listening to. One, Live simply, live simply, give habitually, steward wisely are his main three. But live simply, he's only just come out this book. Uh, even in a time of financial squeeze, any of us can create financial margin in our budget. You just need me to make some changes. There is a reason that Aldi and Lidl have become more popular because people have just done that to uh, create a bit of squeeze. See, Christians should never go top end. Never do that. 
always lean away from expensive towards lower end, but be sure. I mean, he gives lots of examples, because like if you're buying a car, never buy a brand new car, because they depreciate too much. You want to buy a second-hand Toyota. Um, that's what you do. And he gives all this, so there's appendix with this, the reasons why, in terms of reliability and depreciation, that is the best bang for your buck. And uh, you know, so he's eminently practical in all these things. Uh, remember the law of diminishing returns is part of his living simply. You know, dinner with friends at Pizza Express, it might not be as good as dinner at Nobu. But actually, the, the marginal difference if you're with friends is absolutely tiny. It's their company over food. And actually, the marginal difference between going out as opposed to just having people into your own house and cooking is marginal. I've got to wash up. It's a marginal difference compared to the pleasure of their company. You just, you know, but we always, you know, lifestyle creep is always there. That's his big thing. Live simply, give habitually. He says, you just have to start giving. Break the grip of greed on your heart. You just have to do it. You have to give habitually. Nothing makes you better steward financially than just doing it. That's, you just got to crack on. Um, and then steward wisely. And his point there is the biggest bang for your buck comes from investing in eternity. Because it's an investment that lasts forever. It isn't just grabbing hold of a Rolex in Harrods for an hour. It lasts forever. Verse 19. Come on, those who are rich, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous, willing to share. In this way, they'll lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Clearly, picking up on Jesus' teaching. We all struggle with delayed gratification. We've all seen the sort of research or observe it in our own families. Hey, child, age five, do you want a sweet now or a massive bag of sweets in an hour sweet now but you're really stupid yeah but I can I, I can have it now and we think how silly the five-year-old is and then we all do the same with our money gratification now but you get a lot more if you invest and put your treasure in heaven now I'll take it now thanks but there's a virtuous spiral here, of course, verse 19. You invest treasure in heaven, you grasp hold more firmly of that life. The more you invest there, the more you love the thought of being there and love Jesus now, the less likely you are to wander from the faith. So you invest there, not only the returns exponential and without risk, but it benefits you now. You've got to keep looking forward. So there you are. I did what you make of that. I found it uh, a bucket of water over my head, really. Uh, a wake-up call to lifestyle drift. Loving money is a trap. You flee by looking forward. Possessing money is a danger. Use your money to grow in godliness. Don't let it be a trap. I was reading, I don't know why, reading this, I think it reminded me of the, um, or something else did this week. I may have said this before, the story of the missionary couple. I think it's Henry Morrison and his wife uh, returned. Uh, um, a U.S. couple had spent their life on the mission field in East Africa, mainly Uganda. And in 1909, they returned on a steamship into, into um, uh, uh, New York Harbor. And um, as they got off the ship, no one greeted them. But on the same boat was Teddy Roosevelt, who uh, post-president had spent a year 
hunting, shooting, gathering stuff for the Smithsonian Museum uh, on this tour of Africa. You know, it's like, you know, you see Night of the Museum, he's there with all these things. That, that's what he did, okay? That's that year, 1909. And um, he gets this big ticker tape parade, and the crowds are cheering him. Hey, you brought back all these animals, and you've killed all these things. Hey, what a man you are. And uh, the husband says to his wife, he's just spent a year shooting animals. We've spent 40 years serving the Lord, and no one greets us as we come home. And by all accounts, his wife said to him, but we're not home yet. You wait for the greeting when we get home. We've got to keep looking forward to the treasure we've invested. And when the unapproachable one says, come, come and enjoy an eternity of blessing. Use your money for godliness. Don't let it be a trap. Let me lead us in prayer. Our great God and Father, here are truths that most of us know. We've heard them many times before. We know the danger of money. Father, would we not just know it, but would we do something about it? Would actually we improve our habits for good? Would we recognize the danger that we drift with a lifestyle creep? We drift further away in our affections from the Lord Jesus. And therefore, would we be active? Would we flee from that danger? Would we pursue righteousness? Would we invest in the kingdom to come? Knowing that that day we'll be home and thrilled with what we've done and how we've invested do ask it in Jesus' great name. Amen.